Um, thanks, Jack. Yes. So uh, you're right. I've worked in this area for nearly 40 years. I started as a qualified social worker and I was sort of fascinated really by the culture that existed when I started work. Um, I worked with a lot of social workers who had been very busy placing children for adoption. I came into social work and at the time I did very much as a sort of feminist and I saw adoption itself um, as a feminist issue. What I saw was, and what I reflected upon uh, of previous behavior had been that um, adoption was how we punished women who had transgressed the social mores of the day. We took their children. Um, they did not have um, either social status, often money or a place to live or a family that supported them. And we gave their children to those who were respectable dare I say, very often church going, had two bedrooms or more and, uh, and, and a reasonable income. And, I, and I, I saw adoption in a very sort of in that way. So when I started work, um, I came in with, a, to some extent, uh, a view that um, the change in legislation in 75, which had enabled adoptive people to find their families of origin, uh, was really interesting and that it was now bringing about, by the time I came into that world, real change in attitudes. So that was sort of my background. And I think that was the ethos I brought into the work I did. I guess that it then goes without saying that if you're gonna come in with that view, you need practical skills. And the practical skills that I required was that I was able to trace people because it was no good an adopted person coming to me and saying, you know, I have a sense of dislocation of anomie in the world um, and I need to find my family of origin and at least understand that unless I could help to, to trace. So I started kind of fusing together both uh, uh, social work practice with, with tracing skills. Um, and uh, very recently, actually, I was very struck by something that Ruby Wax said in an interview. Um, and she said, um, I'd come to realise in later life that I didn't need therapy. I needed genealogy. And I thought it was, I was really struck by it. So it, it chimed very much with, um, uh, I, I guess, my own uh, work experience. And when you were developing those skills, and I mean, in developing those skills and working with those people, you're, you're giving people a sense of identity through genealogy, right? When you began to do that, where would, where would you go looking? How, how, how do you retrace these links between families? Well, um, I mean, I, traditionally, of course, one is using uh, um, uh, public records. I mean, that is the obvious thing. You're using, you know, intellectual roles and, and you're using information about births, marriages and deaths. Today, those things are, are on computer. They weren't in those days. And often I would end up going, going and visiting areas and talking to neighbours and, and you know, anything that I could possibly do. But it also meant de developing skills in other countries and um, learning how to search in other countries. I guess also having uh, some instinct about social norms within certain groups. I mean, for example, a very simple example is that um, many women came from Ireland to England to have babies. 
what I grew to understand about the Irish diaspora was that they didn't own property. They didn't put their stamp on everything as the middle classes do. You know, they weren't on the electoral roll. They didn't own property. They went from job to job. Very transient, very difficult to, to trace. But if I went back to Ireland, to the village where they came from, the folk knowledge and history uh, uh, back 50 years in people's memories. So, you know, you just learn to, to search in a different way. And that must have changed a lot now with the advent of mass DNA testing, right? I mean, how do you use that when there is no paper trail, um, when, when, you're, when you're seeking to find people for whom, you know, there is no obvious record? Well, I think that's been, the, for me, um, I mean, you know, after all these years, that's been the most exciting uh, development in recently. So just to go back, uh, of course, when a person came to me and said, I don't know who my father is, um, I have never had a name for him. Very usual on adoptive person's uh, birth certificates. Or my birth mother gave entirely false information. I can't find anybody of that name with that description. Or I'm a foundling. I'm left... I'm left, you know, on, in a railway carriage. I'm left in a parked car. I'm left on church steps. You know, the stuff of literature from, uh, from Superman to Moses, you know, Heathcliff. I mean, literature would, is, is completely filled with foundlings. Uh, they're the stuff of our dreams in many ways. You, you know, they are, they are the ultimate uh, uh, self-made person, self-created person. Of our, of our times and probably of ever. I couldn't help those people. And that um, made me rather cross actually. I, I, you know, I don't, don't like that sort of thing. I don't like failure. And so about seven years ago, it became apparent to me that there was a tipping point in the number of people who were taking mass, who were doing, DNA in order to understand something about their genetic heritage. And it was quite crude in those days. The way that these DNA sites like Ancestry work are that they refine their information based on the numbers of people that buy their kits. So today, uh, across about five organisations, four of which uh, coordinate with each other, there are about 30 or 35 million people who have taken tests. Now, if, if a person comes to me as a foundling, has no idea of their origin, and I put their DNA across those sites, the, the people that show to have a connection and it, it, the connection is measured, might only be, when I say only, they might be uh, third cousins. That means they share a great, great, great grandparent. But somebody who understands genealogy can extrapolate from what they see and what they know to that which they don't know. If you can give me that, I can trace somebody's birth father or birth mother without them being themselves on having taken a test or indeed their children or possibly even their parents or indeed their brothers and sisters. It could be more distant than that but I can work through to do that. It is extraordinary. And of course it is uh, fraught with moral dilemmas, 
um, uh, on, on lots and lots of levels. And, and there are many areas in which it will continue to be used. But for foundlings, um, it, this has been an extraordinary breakthrough. For me personally, it feels like the sort of last bit that uh, I couldn't do that I've now been able to do for for the people for whom I work. That's incredible. And as you say, it opens up so many possibilities as well as dilemmas. And I wonder if you could talk a bit more about some of the challenges of that work that, that you must have been faced with scenarios that have been difficult to navigate kind of in, in ethical ways or, or personal ways. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, it goes without saying that uh, when we find living birth parents of children who have been left, it is so complicated. Um, uh, and we have to tread with the greatest of care. I mean, my overall picture of the circumstances in which children are left in those ways is inevitably it is a woman who is in a state of distress, whether it's economic distress, social, you know, a lack of social support, um, uh, could be religious, you know, being in a world that, that would frown hugely upon her having a child. There will be all very young or completely overwhelmed by already too many family responsibilities. And often these children are left very safe. I mean, classically, and the one I'm going to talk about, the child was left um, warmly wrapped uh, with a warm bottle and a packet of, form of formula milk and, and, and watched until the child was taken away from the phone box. So, you know, these are uh, can be acts which are not, uh, while they're desperate, they are as um, kindly towards the child as can be. So this particular case, it was one that we worked on. I'm really very happy to have uh, solved it. Uh, a man came to us, um, in fact, quite interesting. He had seen something uh, I'd written and he came from, he'd been brought up in Northern Ireland. His story was that 50 something years ago, he'd been found in an open car the car, that lit, I mean, with the door open, out in a suburban house, outside a suburban house, in 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 um, Belf just outside Belfast, and he had been taken from there. Nobody knew who he was, and he'd been adopted. He'd gone into the British Army, um, and served as a soldier, and during that time, he had made appeals on television in Ireland, desperate to know who he was. And when Kate Aidy wrote a book called Nobody's Child about foundlings. He features in that as David. David then came to me and said, could, could I help? And we, we, we worked through the DNA. And we started work on this. And we, we, it, it is very complex and in Ireland particularly, because in fact, the uptake in um, DNA kits is mostly in America where the diaspora has gone which is kind of interesting in itself. So anyway, we worked very hard at it and eventually we got to the story. And the story was both his birth parents were dead. 
His birth father had been a married man. His birth mother, his long-term lover, girlfriend, whatever you want to call her, 40 years, according to the man's family, he had known this woman, 40 years. And our client, David, was a result of that relationship. So we were able to find photographs and all sorts of things. The woman never married, she, but the father was married. There were many children on that side and they've been prepared to talk to David, tell him about their, their father, their collective father. And David is very much more settled. However, something really extraordinary happened as we were coming to the end of this extraordinary search. Somebody else took a test. And that somebody else was a full sister. They'd had another child who, again, the MO was identical, left in a phone box and properly looked after with a bottle, but this time in Southern Ireland. <laughs> because in fact, interestingly, the couple, the man and the woman, one was a Catholic and one was a Protestant. This time they left the child in the South. So David brought up uh, as a Protestant and his full sister, Helen, was brought up as a Catholic. Uh, I, I hasten to add, they decided that these things didn't matter. And then something else happened. Um, the film was shown in Australia and a woman living in Australia caught a snippet and she thought she recognized something about her own father, himself a foundling. And he was the child born between David and Helen. So now we had three. So this relationship, of course, it, a culture of not using perhaps birth control. Um, they had babies and they, they left them because she could not have been seen to be a single woman bringing up a family and he could not be seen to leave his family and his wife. So, um, you know, extraordinary stories. That they, they, they resonate on every level. They're they, they are kind of, they're historic documents of, of a bygone time, a bygone set of um, ideals about family, a bygone set of moralities and how people sort of escaped them or circumnavigated them. Um, and, but for the people involved, uh, the representation of actually both belonging somewhere and not just as it were, having just growed, come from nowhere, has been, I think, very profound. Um, so that's a, a little vignette. Uh, I learn a great deal um, both about uh, human nature but, uh, and also uh, about these extraordinary searches as I go along.